Jesus answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we ask you to join us here in this place this morning and trust that you, having kept your promise, are indeed here with us. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Today is the first Sunday in Lent. As I said last week, we now begin the long, slow, cold march through the dark winter toward the place of the skull, the hill outside the city wall upon which our Savior was crucified. It will be a difficult and emotional journey that we go on these next few weeks, even though, as we discussed on Ash Wednesday, we know how it all turns out. I mean, the church wants us focused on the difficulty of it to such an extent that they ask us not to say hallelujah, one of my all-time favorite words, for six weeks, so that the hallelujahs we say on Easter morning to celebrate the empty tomb will ring out all the more joyously. So how does the church see fit to outfit us for this journey? On what foot would the church have us Begin. How will this march commence? Well, in a sense, with what we do here every single week, with a reminder of human temptation and sin, followed, as always, by a reminder of Christ's victory and his finished work for us. We begin with the story of how it all went wrong. St. Paul describes it well in Romans chapter 5 when he says that sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin. And so death spread to all because all have sinned. Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned where there is no law. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who is to come. I love that even Paul can't help but let a little spoiler alert slip out there from the bag there. Uh, The comment that Adam is a type of the one who is to come. Even Paul knows that even as we talk seriously about sin and death, we must always hold out the true and realized hope of Jesus, the cross, the empty tomb, and new life. But we're coming back there in a bit. First, the tragic beginning. Now, the aspect of that tragic beginning that I want to focus on this morning in the midst of what the the biblical story that has come to be known as the fall, what I want to focus on this morning is the intriguing nature of the serpent's temptation. The serpent we read, was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God has made. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, do you hear the deception? He doesn't make some wild, obviously false claim. In fact, he uses 
or seems to be using God's own words, just tweaking them a little bit. Now, of course, God didn't say that she couldn't eat from any tree in the garden. It was just the one tree. But this sounds sort of like something God might have said. And Eve begins down the road of doubt. Did God say was the question. And all of a sudden, what had been a totally sufficient answer up until now Actually, let me tell you exactly what God said. All of a sudden, now that doubt has been introduced, that just wasn't good enough anymore. Have you ever heard of that poem, The Blind Men and the Elephant, by John Godfrey Sachs? If you don't know it, I'm sure you've heard something like it. A bunch of blind men try to tell what an elephant is like. The problem is they can each only feel a part of the elephant. One feels the trunk and so assumes that an elephant is like a snake. One feels a leg and so assumes that an elephant is like a tree and so on. And the claim of the poem and always of those who would invoke it is that no one can know what God is actually like or what God might actually want. He's too big He's too complicated. Any claim that you or I might make is bound to be wrong because we are so limited, so small. The serpent's temptation is kind of like this. Did God really say? I mean, maybe you think you know, but how can you really be sure? You're just, well, you're just you. But here's why I bring the poem up. Even though it seems like a devastating critique, because after all, isn't God so big? And isn't he too complicated to be known by such limited people as us? It can start to lead us down that fatal road of doubt. But the poem has a fatal flaw. Like the serpent is trying to trick us. Because unlike the elephant in Sax's poem, which passively sits there and lets the blind men misinterpret it, the God we worship, the actual God who really exists, almighty God, creator of the universe, our God is not silent. Almighty God has actually spoken. He spoke to Adam and Eve. And then Moses and Elijah and throughout the Old Testament. And then to Jesus, to Saul, who became Paul. In the hearing of many in the New Testament, he spoke to all of them in actual audible words. And he speaks to us through the Holy Bible. The inspired witness, the word written of his apostles. It's as if. The elephant in the poem felt all the hands on him and said, stop, listen, let me tell you what I'm like. St. Paul wrote that all of scripture is God breathed. Hebrews tell us that God's word, the Holy Scriptures, is alive and active, at work on us even now. This is not some old, dead book with nothing relevant to us to say to us today. God has spoken. Now, when the serpent says to Eve, did God say, 
You shall not eat from any tree in the garden. Eve had an answer for him. And what she says is, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. So Eve has heard the word of the Lord. She knows that God has spoken. Now, as we said, the serpent has introduced doubt, and Eve's trust in God is already faltering. You see that she adds a commandment that she's not allowed to touch the fruit of the tree, which is not part of what God actually said. But Eve is at least aware of the fundamental truth that God has spoken into the world. Eve is confronted with a temptation and she tries to go back to what God said. That's the right instinct because our God speaks. Let there be light, right? And then he speaks to the man and the woman about how they should live. Eat of any tree in the garden except this one. If you eat of it, you will die. And though Eve and then Adam after her take it upon themselves to add to, change, and ultimately disobey what God has said, the fact of the matter remains that God has spoken. But the result of this fall for humans is that now we are prone to answer no when asked if God really said something. Or maybe, or I don't know, or even probably not. As Paul said in Romans 5, sin has now entered the world and it has stained all of us. We have convinced ourselves that we can't really know what God is like. That we can't really know what he wants. That we are just blind men feeling along an elephant. And so what we normally do is decide that, well, God must be pretty much like us. That he must want pretty much what we want. And so we stop trying to listen altogether and just follow our own hearts. This is the essence of sin. Deciding that we can't know what God is like or what he wants and that we are the ones who should decide. But we must remember the truth that God has, in fact, spoken. And thankfully, in our gospel reading from this morning, Jesus comes to remind us. Many years later, after Adam and Eve sin, Jesus also invokes God's speech, God's word, when he is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Tempted by loaves of bread in his hunger, Jesus invokes God's word. One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Tempted to see how much the Father really cares for him, Jesus invokes God's word. Again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Tempted to usurp lordship over the earth for himself, Jesus again invokes God's word. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Jesus, 
as sinless God, inhabiting human flesh, fully God and fully man, is able to do what Adam and Eve could not. And this is what Paul, with that little spoiler alert, is hinting at. Jesus is the one to come. He is the one of whom Adam is a type. He is the one to whom Adam points. He does for us what we are so often incapable of doing for ourselves. In the face of temptation, Jesus submits himself to the word of God. He'll do this again in the Garden of Gethsemane at the other end of Lent, mere hours away from the torture and death that loom ominously over him. He will say, not my will, but yours be done. Though we are sinners like Adam and Eve and often fall prey to the temptations of this world and the devil, we know what they knew, that God has spoken. We know that the proper posture of the world to God is one of submission. Did God say is a question that will come up again and again for you in your life, especially as the word of God stands farther and farther apart from a world that refuses to acknowledge it. We are, you and I, just like Adam and Eve. Indeed, we are their descendants. We are sinners because of them, yes, but we are also sinners just like them. This is what Paul ultimately means in Romans 5 when he says that sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin. And so death spread to all because all have sinned. We sin because of them and we sin like them. And this leads to two truths, the law truth and the gospel truth that we harp on so relentlessly here. The law is simple. We should submit ourselves to the word of God like Jesus did in the wilderness. We should not doubt the word of God like Adam and Eve did in Eden. Actually, the parallel is even better than that. It's two gardens, ultimately, isn't it? Satan tempts Eve in Eden and ultimately tempts Jesus in Gethsemane. Did God say? But then the gospel, where Eve doubts, Adam sins, Jesus stands firm. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus turns temptation aside by invoking the word of God. We doubt, Jesus is firm. We sin, he is righteous. We are faithless, he is faithful. And Jesus' righteousness and faithfulness are good news, wonderful good news for us sinners. Because here's the amazing part. Jesus doesn't just invoke God's word. He is himself God's word made flesh. At the end of her telling of the story of Jonah in the Jesus Storybook Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones writes this about the word of God. Many years later, after Jonah, she writes, 
God was going to send another messenger with the same wonderful message. Like Jonah, he would spend three days in utter darkness. But this messenger would be God's own son. He would be called the Word because he himself would be God's message. God's message translated into our own language. Everything God wanted to say to the world in a person. John says something similar in the prologue to his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus is God's word spoken to us. Jesus is God's word spoken for us. No one has ever seen God, but God has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ, his son, our savior. Our God is not some mute elephant allowing us to misinterpret him. You want to know what God is like? He has spoken in the Bible In his son, our God speaks, let there be light in the beginning and let there be salvation in the end. Where Adam and Eve sinned and doubted the word of God, Jesus Christ was faithful and submitted to it. Where you sin and doubt the word of God, Jesus Christ is faithful and submitting to it. Submission even, says St. Paul, unto death. And a death on a cross. Because Christ was faithful to God's word. And because Christ was God's word. Your sin is atoned for. Your unrighteousness is redeemed. And you are now a child. Not of Adam. Of human brokenness. But of adoption into Christ's family. So now we return once again here at the end. To the word of God. In it, we find God's will, his law, his design for this life. Eat from all of these trees. Do not eat from this one. Let us submit ourselves to it. And when we find ourselves, as we so often do, in breach of it, let us not try to change it or add to it or subtract from it. Let us confess, repent. Return to him, reaffirm our faith, asserting afresh our belief in what God has said, his law and his gospel, who he is and what he has done for us. We come back to his table for the only meal that can sustain us. 
Christ's body and blood broken and shed for sinners. So remember, when the devil whispers in your ear, did God really say that God has indeed spoken? His word of the law has found you to be a sinner. This is true. But every sin that Satan can throw in your face, you can confess. You can admit. It's all true. But your God is not finished speaking. His word of the gospel has called you in Christ's name and on account of his finished work, redeemed, raised from the dead, made new. In Jesus, you are adopted into the family of God, a child, a brother, sister, a member of a royal priesthood, consecrated and set apart and welcomed home. Because God has spoken, you are saved. Amen.